0: Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Braincast featuring Dr. Brian Singer. Brian is the director of the Addiction and Intervention Centre here at Sussex and specialises in behavioural neuroscience. In this episode, we talk about the broad range of projects ongoing in his lab, the importance of multidisciplinary research, and his experiences being on committee. If you're interested in neuropsychopharmacology and addiction research, I highly recommend you listen to this episode. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in neuroscience, especially the field of behavioural neuroscience?
1: Yeah, so uh, first, thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. Um, I think my interest in neuroscience started very early on in my life. My dad was a physicist. I always knew I was interested in science. My mom was a speech pathologist and worked with a lot of patients who had strokes. I kind of wanted to understand how the brain worked. Because of seeing what she was, how she was working with the individuals who had strokes and you know had difficulty speaking and things like that. So, uh, so yeah. So I, I was always interested in neuroscience from a very yeah. young age. Um, uh, when I got to university, I tried out working in a few different labs. so I first started out at a very sort of cellular neurobiology. Uh, lab where we studied you know the function of ion channels in the inner ear, yeah. which is fascinating stuff, but it was a bit hard for me to see the bigger picture mm. in terms of how that might sort of contribute to yeah. a disease, for example. Um, and so then I went in the complete opposite direction and worked in pediatric neurology for a little while. Um, and um, was doing some modeling of brain activity in pediatric epilepsy patients and looking at you know how areas related to speech might be impacted by their seizures um and that was you know really interesting and i i found it extremely rewarding but at the same time i wanted to know a bit more i wanted to understand for example what was the reason behind these seizures what you know what was going wrong instead of just sort of saying okay it looked like there was an issue with this brain area but we didn't know what it was so then that's how i sort of got my transition into behavioral neuroscience um so where we could really kind of manipulate and change brain circuits and yeah. observe behavior
0: that's fascinating i think it's so interesting how people come into the field that they're doing at the moment and how like obviously like, your parents had quite a big influence, it seems, on yeah. what you were sort of interested in, especially as they were, like, within the science field as well. Yeah. So, at the moment, what sort of projects are you working on, and can you tell us a little bit about those?
1: Yeah, so, in, in general, we are a behavioral neuroscience lab. Um, the, the fancy term we often use is neuropsychopharmacology. Um, so, a bit of neurobiology, psychology, and pharmacology, <laughs> as the, the word might uh, be sound like so we're interested in understanding um addictions um the neurobiology of addictions and specifically why different individuals are might be vulnerable to developing an addiction or to relapsing uh and aspects like that um and what neurobiology underlies that vulnerability um and some of the the experiments Um, really look at the neurobiology of motivation. So how do sort of cues, for example, that might precipitate relapse, how do these cues become kind of motivational magnets for some people that kind of drive reward-seeking and not others. Um, So that's sort of a basic learning and memory type of aspect of it. Um, Other studies look at um, drug use and basically um, how the pursuit of drug changes across time, across different individuals, both in people and in animal models. And the third area of research is into gambling, problematic gambling. Um, and again, we're looking at both people and animal models uh, of gambling disorder. And specifically, we're, we're really interested in ways we can reduce gambling behavior. And A lot of our focus there is on um, social interactions between people and how increasing social interactions and social relationships might lessen gambling-related harms.
0: So you've got lots of different projects in kind of different areas of behavioral neuroscience. Again, that's very much like the big picture, I guess, because you can kind of... I assume, like what you discover in gambling disorder, might be useful in, say, looking at like motivation and cues in your other projects. So, can you kind of combine them a bit? And-
1: yeah. So, I mean, that that is the original idea, which sort of drove some of my early research from the late you know, around two thousand nine, two thousand ten. In those studies, we initially thought, you know, there seems to be a lot of similarities in the brain uh, in the underpinnings of drug use disorders as well as gambling disorders and so you know we, we think that understanding those mechanisms might help us to develop therapies mm. that might be potentially shared between those disorders but we also recognize that you know these two disorders are very different yeah in multiple ways um i mean one obviously involves taking a substance whereas gambling doesn't involve taking a substance, so you don't have the impact of that substance on the body and mm-hmm. gambling disorder. Then again, you know, people who gamble often drink or smoke or things like that, so there are some of these comorbidities yeah. between these different use disorders. And, you know, there, there are also some differences. So in the UK, for example, um, there's been a lot of research, not a lot of research, there needs to be more research on gambling, but um, a significant amount of research on suicidality and gambling disorder and, Mm. you know, the degree that may be, uh, higher in, in gambling.
0: Yeah. It's almost as if like, I think it was Freud or someone in like 1928 said that gambling disorder kind of stemmed from a desire to like escape negative emotions and like sort of intrinsic factors. Would you say that's the case or are there kind of other factors involved?
1: I think there's a lot of different factors. uh i i do think that is the case i mean there's always this sort of self-medication hypothesis or or theory of drug use or gambling you know to escape certain things i mean i think another thing that is important to gambling disorder in particular is i think to some degree uncertainty itself it might be rewarding to some Mm -hmm. individuals so this there have been some papers, for example, one of my favorite papers is uh, from the Wolfram Schultz lab, which, you know, a lot of people talk about Wolfram Schultz work in terms of prediction errors and how dopamine okay. changes from being uh, elicited by a reward to being elicited to a cue, mm-hmm. um, when cues are repeatedly paired with reward. But in one of these other papers, which is less cited, I think it's from uh, maybe 2003, from Fiora, Fiorello et al, um, again from the Schultz lab, it shows that in between the time of the cue and the time of the reward, if there is a high level of uncertainty, there's actually a ramping up of the activity of dopamine neurons as well. So dopamine seems to be you know, not just about you mm-hmm. know, reward learning and motivation, but it's yeah. also you know, encoding some degree of uncertainty. And you know they, they don't really get at why this is the case in that paper but i i think it's really interesting in that you have something about dopamine as kind of and uncertainty that high sort of thing yeah Yeah. motivating people
0: yeah that's really interesting um so going back to the kind of projects that you're doing in your lab at the moment um what sort of techniques are required to work in your lab and what sort of skills and knowledge would you expect
1: again so with, with the people in my lab i think most of the people um are doing really translational work in, in the sense that they're not just working with you know, animal models of addiction, but they're also using what they have developed in those animal models to test people, for example. You know, one study we're looking at the neurobiology of Q-motivated behavior in rats, um, and we've developed a virtual reality platform that essentially does the same thing in people. So we're looking at variability and how cues cause changes in behavior in rats, and how that variability also appears in people as well. But yeah, in terms, in terms of you know looking at these the same behavior in people and animals, mm-hmm. um, obviously some of the neurobiology we can't do in people. So for example, in, in, in the animal model, we're looking at dendritic spines and their size and shape. Uh, so dendritic spines are these sort of postsynaptic protrusions that you know receive excitatory information. You know we can look at whether you know drugs you know cause changes in those spines, mm-hmm. in animals, okay. and whether we can reverse those changes and maybe use that as a potential.
0: Yeah, so it's quite technical. Really. Yeah, so there,
1: I- there's technical. So we use a variety of techniques. So a lot of it is you know fairly complicated behaviors that Mm -hmm. we we look at, but we also do imaging, like the spines I just mentioned. Um, We have used some monitoring and manipulation techniques, so we have a fiber photometry set up in the lab to be able to uh, measure, for example, calcium signaling in the brain, or we also use fast scan cyclic voltammetry, which is a technique um, where you insert a carbon fiber, uh, into the brain or onto a brain slice and essentially what happens is you pass a, a, a voltage waveform on that carbon fiber and and that causes dopamine or other chemicals yeah. to be oxidized and reduced okay. and there's this electrochemical signature of that reaction mm. and you can use different sort of types of analyses to determine whether that is dopamine or not and you can sort of use it for norepinephrine or serotonin and other neurotransmitters as well but it's sort of a a way to measure real time yeah uh changes in neurotransmission
0: would you say that addiction is almost because some people say it's almost like a, a disease almost or how would you kind of define it
1: well i think the key you know to our to our group's research is to really understand that there is individual variation in behaviors and there's individual variation in the development of addictions and, you know, the expression of addictions. And, you know, of course, different drugs act differently on the brain. Repeated use of different drugs acts differently. We know from animal models that, you know, the pattern of drug use, how it's administered to animals, causes very different changes to the brain. Yeah. Um, So how people use drugs likely also causes very different changes to the brain uh, across individuals. We know that for some addictions, there's a very high genetic component, especially for alcohol use disorder. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, in this, when I was in the States, I think there was this very sort of strong mentality of addiction being a brain disease. Um, whereas I, I still think that, but I think that it's, you know, not necessarily true for every individual, mm-hmm. every, every person who experiences addiction, every person, every type of addiction, yeah. I think there's a lot a lot of variation there. I think, you know, there's choices, some individuals have choices involved, um, especially during the pursuit of drug, as well as, you know, I, I mentioned the importance of social factors, yeah. sort of influencing addiction and being integrated into treatment. So, you know, it's not just that, you know, we can find a, another drug to, you know, cure an addiction, like but I think
0: it's, or something. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's,
1: it's, it's a supplemental sort yeah. of process of treating the condition. It's also crucial when studying any disease, any mental health condition, that you take into account the, the individual's experience with the condition. So if it helps them, you know, understand their condition as a disease, and if, it, if that helps them sort of to get over it, yeah. then that's beneficial to them, and that's okay. sort of the approach that you should take in treating yeah. them. If they don't view it as a disease, but, you know, view it as in some other fashion mm. and that helps them to gain treatment. Yeah, it's actually um,
0: flexibility in that view is quite important. Yeah, there. so I yeah. think
1: flexibility in the view is very important and, um, you know, taking into account these different people's views, yeah. lived experience, when developing experiments to study the condition is also very important.
0: So you've spent a significant amount of time working in the U.S. How does it differ to working in the U.K. and um, what can you gain from working abroad? As a researcher,
1: as a researcher, I think one of the things that I, that I hit upon before is you know different countries have different viewpoints of you know mental illness and the ability to treat mental illnesses and things like that. So I think it's it's always important to keep an open mind. In the U.S. is there's because of where the funding comes from, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. the NIH. I think there's a very sort of heavy influence on brain disease in terms of you know addiction, whereas it's not as stressed in the UK and other European countries, you know, moving abroad and, you know, working in different countries has sort of helped me to keep an open mind about these things, which I think that's very beneficial. Yeah. I mean, I think other differences, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of PhDs and things like that, um, PhDs tend to be longer in the U.S. than here. How long is a PhD in mean probably averages about six years or so in the US, whereas three to four in the UK. But in general in the US, that might include a master's degree or some coursework in the first okay, or yeah. modules in the first couple of years. So. But you're still pursuing your research yeah. during the first two years. You're just taking classes at the yeah. same time.
0: Would you say having more time to do a PhD is beneficial in some way? Do you think doing it for six years, you have a lot more time to obviously learn more about your field and I guess, get better at certain techniques and things like that.
1: I think it is beneficial. So I my, my feeling is three or four years is a bit short. And, you know, you need more time, especially for writing. Um, I think in the U.S., you know, the dissertation writing is sort of included in your PhD time. Um, whereas here, it, it is included, but, you know, you can kind of submit it after. Yeah, um, And that, I think, puts a strain on people in terms of, you know, not necessarily having funding um, during the writing period. Um, so I think that's a definite drawback here, um, which you know might especially negatively impact some individuals more than others. Okay. Along those same lines of sort of being fair in, in PhDs, you know six years in the US is a long time especially in that period of life where people might want to sort of start families and then people might have to do a postdoc afterward and it just kind of delays everything. Yeah. And I think having such a long PhD might have a negative impact on some individuals more so than others, especially females. Who, you know, mm-hmm. There might not be great sort of maternity leave during a PhD yes. or postdoc or something like that. And I think places are still... I think, behind in terms of their rules and regulations about these things, and they need to be improved.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your role as the director of the Sussex Addiction Research and Intervention Centre?
1: I think my role as that centre is to really bring people together from various schools at the university and and also the medical school as well. Um, So basic researchers with social scientists, with philosophers, with Clinicians and things like that that so bring people together um, Not just to collaborate, but also to sort of work on grants together um, especially big grants which mm. have multiple parts, you know, like uh, we Submitted one recently that had a, a very much uh, on gambling it had a very much sort of clinical part a community part okay. to it and that fMRI part and a basic science part, mm. but it was also sort of trying to tackle the same question about gambling. Yeah, Um, and gambling vulnerability so it's it's I think my my role as director there is to bring people together who might not always meet in other circumstances sort of thing
0: yeah yeah it's almost like a a synergy of of people from different areas can often have a more positive contribution than say one person from one area working on a proposal if that makes sense yeah um following on from this I can see that you're um, also a member of several committees, including the National UK Research Network for Behavioural Addictions, Sussex Cross School Research Ethics Committee, and Sussex Impact Award Review Panel. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement here and what you've learned from being a part?
1: Yeah, so I, I like keeping an open mind <laughs> yeah. about things. I think, I think that, that's the that, theme, that's of the sort of a theme yeah. here, and I, I like sort of learning about new areas and things like that, and sort of applying what knowledge I have to help others yeah. and help others sort of develop more impactful research and ethical research. Um, and I think that's, you know, related to all those committees. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't know about me is that, you know, for a little while, I, well, I am, technically speaking, a U.S. patent agent, um, and I've worked a little bit in technology transfer. Te- technology transfer is, you know, this field where, you know, you can take the research of scientists in, for example, at a university and either patent them or create a startup of the research um, to sort of further sort of industry university connections. Um, And so I think doing that, you know, I I really enjoyed sort of the broad overview of different, you know, exciting new areas and inventions that, you know, I encountered on on a daily basis um, and really helping people to sort of get out their research. And I think that's sort of part of the, the deal with, um, the ethics committee and the impact committee is really, well, especially with the impact, uh, committee is, you know, helping people sort of get these grants essentially, which allows them to further, um, their involvement and again, help people in terms of the, the behavioral addiction. So, uh, this is a group made up of, researchers clinicians, scientists from throughout the uk it's essentially headed by a a researcher at a a clinician at southampton and somebody who runs the national gambling center in london it's not just about gambling it's about Mm -hmm. all different behavioral addictions and sort of increasing um, their study and their understanding and their sort of acceptance Mm -hmm. in terms of the mental health committees and Um, ability to sort of, I guess, fund more research into them. Um, We had a recent paper in the Lancet Psychiatry stressing it, how we really need more funds to support behavioral addictions research in the UK.
0: So it it seems that a significant part of being um, a researcher is is writing grant proposals. What advice would you give to someone um, who is applying for funding within your field?
1: It's important to see what's happening in society right now and to try to address those concerns um, in your research, um, whether it's COVID-19 or issues with gambling regulation, things like that. Issues with you know certain drugs being abused or certain combinations of drugs being abused, like benzodiazepines and opioids together, which is incredibly problematic and dangerous. Looking at that and being flexible is important, I think.
0: What, what opportunities are available to students in your lab and what advice would you give to someone who's an aspiring PhD student?
1: So in terms of opportunities in the lab, for Sussex undergraduates we have dissertation students, we have master student dissertations as well. Every year we have placement students who are working in the lab who are undergraduates between their second and third year. There are other sort of master's programs um, such as like the research process where Um, in psychology where students get involved in the lab but don't work on a dissertation. And we're always advertising for Ph.D. students as well. There are a couple of different programs at the University of Sussex, for example, there's Sussex Neuroscience, um, which is a great program, Um, and we've had students in the lab um, from that program as well as um, the School of Psychology has a, a Ph.D. program as well. But I, I think if, if there's one recommendation I have, it's, you know, if you're a PhD student who wants to, you know, get involved in research, don't feel afraid to, you know, contact a professor to discuss the research and potential things you can get involved in. Um, because we're, you know, always open to discussing these things and working with you on potential proposals. And we might know of other opportunities uh, available for mm. PhD studentships from you know other grants or maybe we have a grant that you know needs a phd student to work on it too yeah. so don't be afraid to contact us
0: okay i think that's really good for our listeners to hear because it's quite like even if you've done two masters for instance it's quite nerve-wracking to reach out to someone who's like an expert in the field coming from where we are so yeah and no, it's good to know that obviously that's very welcomed and
1: you know i, I think people get very nervous about emailing us don't be I wouldn't you know spend you know hours crafting the perfect email to to a professor to you know asking to you know be involved in research but I would try to keep that that message to the professor you know actually tailored so you know about the research question don't don't just simply say I read your paper and found it interesting
0: yeah what's a commonly held belief about your role that you passionately disagree with
1: what I firmly believe is one of the most important aspects of my my research or my lab's work, I should say, is to train individuals to be good scientists, to be good researchers. So I kind of, you know, I believe that, you know, yes, my research is important, um, but there's only so much impact that I can have as kind of a single individual. And so I really believe strongly that teaching other individuals to sort of be able to conduct research do research understand research correctly understand papers things like that is probably one of the most important things that I can do because I can encourage multiple people to sort of start labs do other influential work things like that Um, and I think that yes I'm passionate about my research but I think the biggest influence will be in sort of getting the people who I work with to yeah have a widespread influence
0: yeah I think that's really really interesting i think that's so important to make sure that like the next generation are good scientists coming out with like quality research because otherwise like what's the point i guess and so what surprised you the most about a career in research
1: well i mean i think when i first started out as a phd student you know i was one thing i was worried about i guess for me was you know how you know, if I studied an ion channel or something like that, I'm probably offending people who study ion <laughs> channels by saying this, but you know, could could studying a single ion channel sort of keep my attention for you know decades to come?
0: Yeah, I guess it kind of depends what you would apply it to. If that like aligns with your interest or not, or whether actually learning that thing can help your thinking on another area. Yeah. So. Yeah
1: yeah so i think you know i've talked a little bit about my research and it's it's kind of very varied we have multiple projects and i think you know there's i forget exactly what the question was at this point in time but i think you know there's at least for me at least right now you know there's a bit of flexibility in terms of what what we can study um and you know i think that's not necessarily what i expected you know, as a PhD student sort of focused on, you know, something very specific. Mm. I thought, you know, okay, I was you know, setting my, myself up mm. to study this little thing for the rest of my life. But, you know, there, you, know, you do go on to do a postdoc, yeah. which is usually something different. And then, you know, maybe another postdoc yeah. which is something different. So, you you know, over time you accumulate all this knowledge and these different techniques and possibly studying different brain systems yeah. and things like that. And it does, in the end, give you flexibility. And especially, you know, even if you're not necessarily the expert on something, you can always find collaborations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because I guess, like, when you're at school picking your A levels um, or even picking your bachelor's degree, it's you kind of feel quite limited in, in some respects. Um, but then I guess, yeah, with research, you can really like delve into new areas and then bring them together at times, yeah. um, like you mentioned and finally what's your favorite part of the brain and why <laughs> actually if you could upgrade any part of your brain
1: upgrade yeah. M- my brain personally yes oh boy um <laughs> you know if, if you're upgrading your own brain personally you know i, I i'm probably overthinking this if I start to upgrade one system, it's going to have a negative impact on another start
0: system. compensating. And yeah, things, something yeah. <laughs> will start
1: compensating, and, you know, that, I mean, just in terms of my train of thought here, uh, you know, I was thinking, oh, well, what's my first favorite area of the brain? You know, it's probably the nucleus accumbens, that's what I've been studying, or, or maybe more likely the projections from the VTA to the accumbens. Yeah. Um, is that an area that I want to upgrade personally in my own brain? I don't know. What do I want? You know, I I tend to be very laser focused on certain things, you know, getting a grant done. And maybe, you know, being too focused sometimes is not a good thing because, you know, I obsess about those little details about the grant when, you know, those little details maybe not matter so much. So maybe I should, you know, change my orbital frontal cortex a bit, (laughs) you know, by, you know, allowing me to be flexible and switch tasks. And things like that but then you know it's those little details that are important so maybe you know if i change my orbital frontal cortex i'll have a negative impact on Mm. the actual grant itself
0: yeah (laughs) that was a very good answer i like that yeah thank you for coming on to braincast all right thanks for for having me